listening to the Futures Podcast with me, Luke Robert Mason. On this episode, I speak to the co-founder of the Pirate Bay, Peter Sunday. Human emotion and memories and and connectivity and and culture uh, has a much higher value and meaning than just finance and, and business. Peter shared his insights into the cultural importance of copying, why pranking and trolling is an effective form of online activism, and why civil disobedience might be our best tool to bring about a free and open internet. Now, one of the world's most infamous peer-to-peer file-sharing platforms is the Pirate Bay. Allegedly launched in 2003, it fast became the largest source for downloading feature films, TV shows, and software. For over a decade, it sparked numerous controversies pertaining to the legality of file-sharing, the limits of copyright, and the issues surrounding civil liberties. But behind all of this outrage is a much more nuanced story, one of activism and political engagement driven by a desire to troll authority and to question the assumptions about what the web is, how it is operated, and how it is governed. At the heart of this is the Pirate Bay's outspoken co-founder, Peter Sunday, who has continuously found new and often hilarious ways to question reality through engaging in a hacktivism at a global scale. So Peter, hacker or pirate, activist or prankster, politician or provocateur, artist or ex convict how would you best describe yourself like everything you just said i think it's a <laughs> it's a mix of everything i think it's uh, in general we're not binary people we have different time slots in life for different things so i, I think we need to be all of those things and the more the merrier the more the merrier indeed. I mean, at the heart of everything that you do, it seems to be an interest in this idea of copying. Copying is is so integral. It feels in, in so many ways in, in biology and in society and mechanics. I mean, why is copying so integral to how we progress as a society? Well, it's the basis for everything we do. It's like we learn by doing, we learn by copying, we learn by mimicking, we uh, we go to school to copy other people's uh, understanding and knowledge. So we mm-hmm. can't have a society without having copying. And in today's society, all information is digital. We have the possibility of having every copy available for everyone. So, so in, for me, it's a way of looking at how do we want to develop society? And if we want to do it more rapidly and in a more fair way, of course, copying is at the core of everything. I mean, I, I want to start at the beginning because the, the Pirate Bay is really the, the story here. And how did the three individuals, how did they end up creating one of the most popular destinations on the internet? By accident, like everything else. I think um, <laughs> we were uh, interested in technology. Mm-hmm. We were like, um, we were quite a big group. We're like 40, 50 people that were, had different interests, but we all kind of formed together as a small, weird think tank uh, operation called the Bureau for Piracy as sort of a um, reaction to the anti-pirates that were uh, founding uh, organizations, anti-piracy bureaus in, in, in all over Europe. Mm-hmm. So we were like um, somewhere between a prank, student-esque prank uh, or organization, that very loose, playing with new technologies. And and one of the things we, we happened to do was uh, we, we found a new technology called Torrents and BitTorrent, mm-hmm. and we made a website using that mostly for the Scandinavian uh, file shares, which the big difference with BitTorrent and how previous file sharing worked was that you could uh, participate in, in sharing 
in a more fair way where you would also upload parts that you downloaded. So it, previously you would have to share a hard drive of 20 gigabytes of music in order to get new music. There were It was a very elitist system and BitTorrent kind of changed all of that where you could be, you wouldn't just be like someone who took from someone who you would also like uh, help other people in, in sharing. So it was very interesting on a philosophical level, but also on a technical level and on a legal level. Um, so, so that's kind of what we focused on. And what happened to be is like the, the Pirate Bay that, that came out of this group started growing um, slowly and became a little bit bigger. And we were three people that were, let's say, more and more or less the people that uh, took care of it day to day. So we split from the other group. We I still stayed as a member of the, the first group, but we focused on you know most of our time on, on Pirate Bay. And I think we didn't have any like big vision that this is going to be extremely big or anything. Like it, it was just important to us on a personal level, and that's why we did it. And then everyone else started shutting down because of legal pressure, and and we took a, a stance against kind of that bullying that these companies were doing and are still doing even to this day against the same people. So I think it was just kind of timing, luck, or maybe the opposite of luck and <laughs> just being a little bit stupid, actually, not looking at the, the consequences of what we were doing. I mean, what were those early days like? How did you find your, your co-founders? We, we always have these kind of imaginaries of what uh, groups of, of young individuals coming together to create a tech project looked like. But what was the, I guess, culture like at the Pirate Bay back then? It was nothing like what you would imagine. Uh, we were three individuals that had different political uh, interests and philosophies. We did not mm -hmm. like each other that much. We were, we could talk about the internet. We were very much idealists when it came to freedom of speech, access to information. There was very few things that we had in common. You know, from me being on the, as they would call it, extreme left, and the other guys were the moderate right, or as I would call it, uh, neo-Nazis, uh, almost. <laughs> no, so it was, it was, we were very different. But we uh -huh. did agree upon, like, the, the basis of of what became the Pirate Bay. So we could work on that. And I think in, in many ways, because we didn't, every time we tried to speak on other things, we started fighting. So we decided not to do that. And it was very productive in a way to just ignore those things. For you, what was the Pirate Bay? Was it a tech project or was there something else going on there? Were you using it as a platform for both art and perhaps even activism? For me, it was definitely activism. It was early on hacktivism, I would say. It's using technology to leverage an ideology that I wanted to to promote and and, uh, and have discussed. So, of course, mm. there were the the practical angle of people actually being able to reach uh, information and sharing. But that was for me that was like the the good thing of the system that would make them think about why they were doing this and how we wanted the world to look like. For the other guys, they had different interests in in, in Pirate Bay, of course. Like for Frederick, it was mostly a, an amazing tech project to work on uh, as a technician because it was we were running half of the internet traffic at one time, and and uh, being you know we had no budget, no money, no whatsoever. We had the first server was actually we didn't have money for the chassis of it, so it was actually in a shoebox, ran in Mexico, probably funded by you know some Mexican cartel. It was very different than what you would imagine a normal startup or anything like that. So <laughs> it was it was very exciting that way. And, and it also made us focus very much on having the system up and running and, and getting people's support for doing this. Because I think that was the most integral part of it for me, that if the public didn't like it and didn't use it, then 
didn't want it. It would, it would be, you know, a useless product. I mean, that was the amazing thing about the Pirate Bay and reading about your story. It's it's how you messed with people's expectations because the expectation was that because it was running about 52% of the internet traffic at the time, that it was this huge uh, nefarious organization. And you were able to use that perception to almost uh, troll the press and, and mess with some of their expectations, weren't you? Yeah, it was, uh, we were really good at that. Uh, I can probably take some of the blame for that as well. But yeah, I, every week there would be some journalist contacting us, asking to you know meet us at our headquarters or our maybe our local offices somewhere. And of course, we you know we had normal day jobs, all of us, and then we didn't have any money. We were most of the times in Piper were shut down. It was not because of police, which everyone thought it was because we had unpaid bills somewhere and we were finding the next sucker to, you know, make sure that he will not get money from us because we, we can't afford the internet bills. But uh, <laughs> bandwidth was very expensive that time. So, so it was very, the perception was very different. And as you said, we, we were using that quite much to our advantage. We sent our press releases like uh, big corporations would do, but uh, using words that big corporations would not use. Uh, very often words like fuck or uh, fuck off or uh, fuck was the mostly used word, I would say. <laughs> um, so, so that was, we used very much the the form of big uh, corporations mm-hmm. when it fit our agenda. And when people started giving us kind of undeserved respect and, and uh, attention, we, we didn't feel like it was, you know, something we could waste. So we started using that as well. So uh, one of the funniest projects that, that, that we did was um, there's this nation or island or platform really outside of uh, England that's called Sealand. Mm-hmm. They claimed to be their own nation. And we had a discussion like that. That's kind of cool. We should have our own nation uh, because who doesn't want to have its own their own nation? Uh, and Sealand ended up being on eBay. They they actually wanted to sell Sealand. And then we started the first crowdfunding campaign on the internet ever, uh, just called buysealand.com. Just claim that we're we're going to buy this country and we need your money and that's it and if we can't afford we're going to do something else with the money that's fun and people started donating it took like um, 24 hours and we had fifty thousand dollars or something like that and all of a sudden i remember the prince of sealand got invited to the larry king talk show and, and talked to one of the bosses at warner brothers or disney something like that about the problematic situation of us having our nation and then dictating copyright laws and so on, which was, I, I think I was still hung over from the party we had when we came up with the idea of Sealand <laughs> when I saw him on Larry King. So it, it was a very bizarre situation that people took us way too serious. And I, I think that was the, the best thing that we ever did was getting that attention. How far did that project go? Did you did you end up uh, starting your own country or or did that get nipped in the bud after Larry King? Well, Hollywood being afraid of us, uh, they gave Mm -hmm. the guy a movie contract. So there was this really crappy movie about Sealand a few years later. Uh, He happened to get it, you know, exactly at that time. It's probably totally unrelated. But yeah, in general, I think also we would not be uh, good people to run our own country, at least not as a group of those three people, because it would be uh, a really awful country to live in with those type of politics. But it it was also like a really interesting debate that happened when we started Mm -hmm. talking about having our nation, because people on the Internet started realizing that there is something wrong on the Internet, that we we need to have our own nation in order to actually have a counterbalance to the United States having so much influence and uh, other countries being kind of afraid of the United States. States and, and their influence when it comes to technology. 
that was very interesting talking about that and also some very scary situations that arise from that because people started applying for passports we, we made our government website and people started applying for passports because they were refugees and so on so it was like all of these deeper meanings that came to this which is uh, you know troublesome but uh, also of course interesting on a, on different levels <laughs> well there were so many projects like this wasn't there the, the, you, you uh, claim to be starting a drone internet you basically virtually invaded North Korea I mean what are some of your favorite ways you were trolling the press at the Bay. So, long story. I try to keep it short, but uh, I think the North <laughs> okay. Korea relationship is really uh, it's really different. So, not a lot of people know this, but North Korea and Sweden has a, a really long history. Uh, after the Korean War, North Korea shut down, and one of the first countries they started trading with outside of uh, Russia and China was, of course, Sweden, being a socialist country in their eyes, and also having something which they wanted, which was. Volvo tra- uh, trucks and, and Saab and Scania tractors and, and all of these things that they wanted to buy a lot of Swedish technology. So Sweden mm. was the first country uh, invited into North Korea, which was considered or thought of as probably one of the richest countries in the world, which is you know a, an absurd th- thought today. But North Korea was very rich before the, the the Korean War. So Sweden got pranked or like they get, they got kind of screwed over by the North Korean government. So North Korea started buying things and slowly paying for them to the Swedish government. And then the Swedish government started funding local companies in Sweden so that they could produce faster and give more to North Korea. And then in the end, uh, North Korea has, a, you know, they just stopped paying the bills and owed Sweden like uh, 200 million euros or something like that. Uh, still to this day, they haven't paid any, you know, anything since the 90s or early 90s. So of course, Sweden ended up having an embassy, a North Korean embassy in Stockholm, which was actually uh, used for smuggling cigarettes to Sweden in the 90s as well. Uh, interesting story. But it's one of the few countries in the world, like in the Western world, that has an embassy of North Korea. Uh, and, and I've been kind of obsessed with the North Korean Swedish relationship and, and studied them quite a lot and just out of pure interest. And I know that every time you say something about North Korea or you want to talk to North Korea, they will always say no comment. But very often when journalists started asking us for comments and we didn't want to reply, we always said something stupid. And then one time I was really annoyed at a guy working for a Swedish newspaper because I've told him off so many times that I, I don't want to respond to your things. And I said, I don't want to respond because right now I have to go to my meeting at, at the North Korean embassy. And then, you know, <laughs> uh, I replied two minutes later saying, oh, please ignore that. Uh, and then, of course, you know, he didn't ignore it. And uh, I said, uh, you know, I, I can't comment on what I just said. I, I just was playing along with him. And then I leaked through some other sources that we were going to make a deal with being hosted in North Korea at the embassy in Stockholm, because they also have a fiber connection there. And we would be on North Korean soil, but in Sweden. And one of the things we did with Pirate was that we always made up things that were plausible, very unlikely, <laughs> but technically possible. And having the reputation we do, it could actually happen. So working with the North Koreans mm-hmm. is very plausible for us, especially at that time where, where people were kind of confused of who, who we were and what where our goals were. So, of course, that was the first prank we did was the, with North Korea was that we, we claimed to be hosted at the embassy. And then when the journalists contacted them, they said, of course, no comment. And, you know, instead of saying this is not true, which they 
press would kind of <laughs> expect them to say this is not true and deny it. Uh, so there was for a long time, there was rumors in the press, like the press actually wrote a lot of stories about Pirate being hosted in North Korea. Then, of course, a few years later, we uh, after that was, you know, obviously it was uh, people realized it was a joke. But a few years later, we kind of revisit uh, revisited that uh, project and, and we actually took all of North Korea's IP addresses. So we, we found a way to uh, make our routers look like they were actually the routers of the North Korean country. Uh, <laughs> and just to, it was kind of a brag to show how we could uh, hack the internet and, and, and take control over parts of the internet that was not really well protected to show off our technical skill. But also we actually had IP addresses that were registered to North Korea and we ran the Pirate Bay on one of those IPs. And we even delayed the traffic. So even though it came to Sweden, uh, we had like uh, machines in in front of it that delayed all of the traffic. So it would look like it was on a satellite link and we faked all <laughs> everything. And it took like almost a week before the technologists realized how we did this. The press was all over and North Korea always, they just had like no comments. And then afterwards, of course, people started doing all of these memes with pictures of, uh, you know, the three of us being in North Korea with, uh, you know, teaching Kim Jong-un how to do internet and so on. It was, uh, it was very funny. And um, yeah, uh, the only sucky thing is I always say about this story is that for a week, uh, we actually had all of the internet traffic in North Korea. So the North Koreans could not use the internet, which is sad, of course. I mean, it feels like, Peter, you, you should be thanked by the international community, not, not, not vilified for some, of your, uh, for some of your interventions. I mean, what is it that, that drives you to find, and, and find these exploits and, and, and play in these spaces? I think it's just uh, I never stop being a kid. And <laughs> at the other hand, I think that I, I, like, I like pranks because they give you the attention for something else. Like you have this absurdity mm -hmm. of, for instance, being in North Korea, which means that people will talk about the actual thing. It's really like the best thing that Piper ever made was the fact that people started talking about intellectual property at all because it's such a boring topic. So yep. we used kind of these pranks in order to make it... I wouldn't say sexy, but funny. Uh, when you can't make it sexy, you have to make it funny, right? So <laughs> we were the funny people that made it uh, interesting to talk about serious topics in a way that was more or less core discussion about what we want our next community or the current society to look like. If mm -hmm. we're going to build it on top of uh, a platform like the, the internet, we need, of course, to have democracy in place. We need to realize that we don't own the cables, we don't own the infrastructure, all of these things, and start discussing how to integrate that into actual politics uh, in, in normal everyday politics and how to make sure that we have human rights on the internet and all of these things as well. And we did it in a very playful way. And for me, it's I like humor, of course. I, I like pranks. I, I love the yes men, all of these people that make pranks that are clever uh, and, and funny. Um, and it's a very effective way to actually get your ideology across and then and, and open up a discussion. And our opponents are basically every every project I go into, uh, the opponents happen to be humorless people. So <laughs> you get this kind of unfair advantage where they look like dicks and they are mostly are dicks as well, but they, they look like they're what they actually are. And so you get kind of a lot of sympathies for your cause because uh, you, you mm. pull down their trousers and see that they're, you know, they're just 
assholes, right? <laughs> well, it, it does feel like just being annoying is a legitimate response because I know uh, when it came to some of the legal threats that you were, were getting, there's some of the responses to the lawyers of the companies who were sending you takedown notices. You you were just trying to be annoying to sort of expose how how stupid some of these requests were. So could you share some of your uh, your favourite? Uh, responses to some of those lawyers in the early days? I think back in those days when people started sending like these uh, takedown notices, uh, the cease and desist letters, these companies were very used to people just uh, listening to them and then taking their word for it. But I would say 99% of the cease and desist letters that we got were from the, the United States and they were talking about the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, which is a law in the United States saying on, you know, dealing with how to take down websites or content on websites. That, of course, does not apply outside of the United States. And, and it felt uh, really weird that they would try and apply that in a different country, even though, you know, um, Europe, we have other laws that they could use. And, and we would, you know, be happy to talk to them if they didn't have this kind of like, sorry to say, but this Central North American attitude of like, uh, we are the world and we are the world police. So we wanted to take them down a notch and, and be annoying, but also legally right. So we just very often told them, fuck you, or here's a thing you can stick up your ass or recommend <laughs> models of batons that we told them and, and confused them quite a bit. I remember one of my favorite personal responses was uh, I got a letter from one of these big Hollywood studios about, you know, take down this and this movie or something like that. And I just sent a picture of a polar bear. The popular myth being that polar bears roam around in the streets in, in Scandinavia, even though it's only on Svalbard, a Norwegian <laughs> island for, for north. And I just sent a picture, like no text, no nothing else, just a picture of a polar bear. And I got a reply saying, you know, why do you send a picture of a polar bear? And I said, well, this guy is outside my window. He's trying to kill me. Like, why do I care about, you know, some American law uh, <laughs> called DMCA? You know, it's not relevant for me, but staying alive is. So what are you going to do to help me? And of course, he didn't reply to that because, you know, it's just stupid, right? So they very often sent documents in doc format or in BMP files or like really big image files instead of just text in a, in a document because they're from this, you know, they scan some documents, right? So it, it's this collision of internet culture and, and the tech savvy culture with the old world very much in, in a document form and, and just the format of it. So we would, you know, draw a cartoon or a doodle and set it back with, you know, a penis squirting or something like that, because they did not know how to respond to that. And, and when they don't respond, you actually win because uh, they didn't follow up on their legal threat anymore. Right. So uh, we were totally in the clear because they were confused. And uh, it's a very modern Sun Tzu kind of uh, approach to you know, attack back with its stupidity. Well, well, it feels like it's not just stupidity that you you were utilising. It was really political theatre. What you were doing was a was a form of politics. And I know you've been heavily involved in in European uh, politics. In fact, you, you ran for the European Parliament in two thousand and fourteen with the Pirate Party of of Finland. So, uh, why have you always had this interest in in nasciently getting involved in in, in European politics? What is it you're trying to uh, What is it you're trying to reveal by um, getting involved in these sorts of things i kind of understood my as you say theater is a really good word for what we were doing and then I, i'm still mm -hmm. what i'm doing is mostly theater in, in many ways or and i have sort of a role in this theater where i am some sort of uh, prankster and a uh, jester 
it's a story, right? So it's a storytelling. Mm-hmm. Uh, and very often when you have a story, it's simple to write for the press. So it's, it's you know, um, so for instance, when I ran for office in the European Union, it was, it's not because I like certain political parties. In, in general, I, I don't like political parties. I, I, I It's too constrained for me in, in many ways. And I don't want to be a politician with responsibility to voters or anything like that. It doesn't work for me, really. Um, other people do that much better and, and should do it uh, instead of me. But I realized that if I run for for office, uh, I will get attention and I will use that attention for making sure that other politicians running the same election have to talk about the things that I want to be talked about in the in the media. So I could bring the discussion about the Internet openness and, and copyright and transparency and access to information, all of like the core values of like ownership of the Internet and what we want to do with it. Internet is human right and all of these things. And I, I sent out really awful advertising campaigns like i made small videos i was just looking into a camera romantically with you know romantic smooth music really awful and then it just said like peter romantic (laughs) i didn't say like uh, this is my politics or i didn't say that this other party is crap i just took a different path because i knew that it would be much more interesting to me as well because it's some sort of artistic approach to this as well and of course, it gave me a lot of attention, uh, both because I had this weird background and my when the media asked me for like well, what my main point is of running, I would say, well, I want diplomatic immunity. Uh, and that's like, if you mm-hmm. vote for me, I get diplomatic immunity. And that would be really cool for me. And, and people, of course, like get shocked by that because it's interesting. It's funny. And also there's and, and then they would ask why do you want diplomatic immunity? And then I could tell them the story about how I got, want, I was wanted by Interpol at the time. Uh, and of course, uh, I could tell a story of why, which is the Pirate Bay. And, and then you have this David and Goliath story. And all of a sudden by saying one thing that sounds ridiculous, you open up for someone, you, you kind of invite someone over to your house and on your play, uh, your side of the of the playing field to have a discussion, which is much nicer than trying to like force someone to have this discussion. I mean, it it was absurd at the time, but we've just come through the Trump era where it felt like the only reason he was running was for diplomatic immunity. So do you think some of these absurd things have bled back into real life politics? Uh, The border between art and reality is slowly dissipating? You know, it's it, it's impossible to do satire today. I like the, the, the comedians working on satire there. You know, it's it's yeah. impossible. Of course, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm friends with Chris that started 4chan, uh, one of the sweetest guys ever in the world. Uh, you know, he's uh-huh. just an amazing guy. I would never expect whatever he created to create Trump and QAnon, right? It, it's, uh, it went from being this mm. nice hobby project of 4chan that was... Everything that was great with the internet was on 4chan, like an anonymous board where people could post things and discover themselves and rediscover themselves without having any pressure of, you know, like if you post something on on, uh, social media today, you will have to stand for that in five years, even though you're a totally different person. You know, 4chan was the opposite. It was the the beauty of the internet. And right now it's just like the cesspool of the whole world. And and I, I think something happened very quickly and might be that let's say, our side uh, that we're using the internet as a platform trolling and all of these things, uh, maybe our tactics were taken over by the alt-right and, and, mm-hmm. and kind of the opponents to what we want to achieve and, and, and did that in a much better way than we could ever do. 
their memes were certainly uh, stronger. I mean, it wasn't just politics you were involved in. You were involved in religion, which was one of the oddest things that I, uh, I read about you. In fact, you founded your own religion, the Missionary Church of Copy Me-ism. So what was the story behind the Church of Copy Me-ism? So, again, going back to my idea of like, um, you know, taking things differently, we had an opponent in, in the anti-pirate world, which uh, a lawyer that realized that calling us pirates didn't really work because we kind of reclaimed that word from being something bad and, and into something that had a positive spin. People were very proud and, and a lot of people are still proud of being a pirate, depending on what you put in the meaning. So the Hollywood studios, music studios, when they said someone was a pirate, uh, it had no effect. So this woman specifically, she started every single interview. She said that we're a cult, like we're a cult, we're a cult. <laughs> Uh, and we had this fun word, which was copy me, which in, in Swedish means just to copy me, of course. Uh, and we, we put that as a logo on everything. Instead of copyright, it was copy me. And we made like a, a pyramid with a K inside instead of, a, you know, a round symbol with a C inside uh, as some sort of alternative to to copyright that we wanted to be copied. And, and then uh, when she started calling us a cult, I started, you know, looking into, okay, so can we kind of reclaim that word? Can we be a cult and make it something funny? Mm. And, you know, I, I'm from, I'm Norwegian Finnish. Uh, I grew up in, in uh, most of Scandinavia. And one of the big differences between the Scandinavian countries, one of the major differences with Sweden is that Sweden uh, split the state church in uh, like 2000, I think. Uh, so Sweden is one of few countries in Scandinavia that does not have a state church. By doing that, they made the most liberal and, and, and modern law about religions in the Western world, whereas you can believe whatever and you can be recognized as a religion if you have a certain format is, uh, is fixed. So you need to have some sort of Bible, you need to have some sort of way to do prayers and so on. And Sweden being a social democracy, somewhat still you know you would pay 50 euros to register a religion that would be recognized by the state if they just liked the format of it because they could of course not comment on the content because then it would not be very open so we i had some friends that thought it was a funny idea and and you know i i was playing around like reading all of these things and uh, you know, I just like the idea of having my own church. And then I, I realized that in most of the laws about surveillance, like the data retention directive or, or in Sweden, there's the FRA, which is the Swedish NSA that uh, had a, a new law coming that was listening into traffic and in, um, between borders. All of these surveillance laws are really afraid of, let's say, the religious uh, lobbying. So there's always an exception to religious communication in all of the surveillance laws, which is ironic because most of the, what they're after is, of course, uh, jihadists or someone who is a religious terrorist, but you're really not allowed to listen into that traffic. So I realized that if, well, basically, if you talk to your priest, uh, that is a religious communication. And there's this church called the Church of Mormons, the Mormon Church, and they consider everyone being a priest. So you can go and, and uh, you know, talk to anyone else in, in order to lighten your heart and then talk to God. So I just decided we, we can do the same. Everyone can be a priest until proven otherwise. And, and then instead of having peer-to-peer -peer traffic, we would have priest-to-priest -priest traffic, still P2P. But uh, if someone filed a lawsuit against you for file sharing, you can say it's my religious beliefs. And, and copying is the, the actual service that you do. It's your, your way of, of talking to God. And then it would be four years in prison for the person who actually looked over your traffic and then discovered that you were wow. doing your prayer. So it's just a funny, like... 
of course, it would be absurd in, in a case of law, you know, in a court case to say that this is religious, uh, but it wouldn't, it would, again, it would be plausible. It would be probably hard to not take that seriously as a lawyer, as a judge, because it, it will reflect on so many other things. So we had this priest-to-priest communication, and, and then, you know, it was just a, a matter of getting the church registered, and it was just super funny. And it also took away this whole discussion from the other side that we were a cult. <laughs> and the interesting thing, of course, is that this woman who started with this cult, she, she works for Hollywood and the Church of Scientology. So she would have, of course, this understanding of why being a cult is bad, right? So, But it was also like... Um, one of my favorite things that happened with with the church afterwards, because we opened it up for uh, registrations and you could become a member and, and, and so on, just as a fun thing. And tens of thousands of people signed up. My favorite moment or like least favorite moment was uh, I went to a, a really amazing com- uh, festival in Belgrade in Serbia. I was there with one of the other guys that, that was the co-pope or, or whatever you want to call it of the, of the church. And there was this guy that came up to us and asked if we would wed him and his girlfriend because they wanted to be the first couple ever married in the church of, of, of copying, of copyism. Uh, and I had to explain that I don't believe in marriage. And my, my, my friend explained that he's actually Christian and uh, of another faith. So he didn't want to do it. And then they still asked us, well, so what, what should we do? And I, I just saw Austin Powers the day before. And so I was still in this mindset of like lasers. So I just told him, you need lasers, you know, uh, which Austin Powers says in his movie, you know, very funnily. And then the day after at the festival, there, there was a wedding. The guy got married and they had like a, a guy Fox mask. The priest had a guy Fox mask on and they had some uh, computer speech uh, with all of the wows. And then they had 40 people with laser pens in the audience, you know, shooting lasers. And uh, it was, you know, funny and also a little bit scary. So I talked to the guy afterwards. I said, you know, congratulations and all of that. And I, I wanted to make sure that he realized that this was kind of a political prank. And, and I just said, you, you, you do realize this, right? And he, he looked really seriously straight into my fa- face and said, like, Peter, you're just testing my faith. <laughs> so maybe it was a cult, which is kind of funny. So I just started laughing because it was kind of scary and funny at the same time. And it's on my bucket list. You know, I have a long bucket list that's getting shorter by the minute because, you know, I do some of these things. But starting your own cult is kind of a cool thing to have done. <laughs> well, it, well, what's crazy is it seems like the only way to get true privacy in this day and age in a, in a post-theist world is to be part of a religion. That reveals something very problematic about the world in which we're, in which we're living in. Yeah, but everything is a religion. Like the, the current regime we're living mm. in, we, we call it political, but it is uh, sort of a religion. Like uh, capitalism is religion. Socialism is sort of a religion, yep. but uh, we're living in one of them. And, you know, I, I don't have that faith. I'm not even ag- agnostic. I'm, I'm, I'm very much don't have a faith of capitalism. So this is the problematic thing is that we, we have a conviction rather than an understanding of society. Mm. And it leads to quite problematic situations when we can't see kind of what's good for us in the long run. And this is typically the, the problem with religions is that it, it's not based on facts or science. It's based on a belief or a hope, which could be good if it's were also kind of based on, um, on, on actual facts. I mean, the interesting thing about the religion is you, is you developed the entire aesthetic of the thing. Uh, apparently, your religious symbols were control plus C and control plus V. I mean, what other aspects of the religion did you enjoy uh, enjoy creating? 
Well, I'm very much like the discourse around religions as a sort of a political experiment. A lot of mm. people were really upset about us starting a religion because they are the true followers of some god and said we were kind of abusing the power invested into people, like which I can understand. Like a lot of people have had troubles, you know, quite a lot of troubles because of religious uh, convictions, and and then we show up as some sort of political prank, uh, abusing kind of the. The thing they've built up on uh, some sort of recognition and, and respect for. Then again, I think a lot of religions are sort of political to begin with. Mm. Many of them have been used as political tools. Um, there is a reason why the UK head of state is also the head of the church. All of these things go in, are intertwined. It, it's more of a culture than a religion or a politics, maybe. And for me, it's important that we question these things and, and that we have respect for them, of course. But I, I think it's okay to use whatever tool you have if the reason of doing it is the right reason, right? So if you have a conviction that you're doing it for the right reason, I'm fine with it. But it was really more interesting when people internally in the church that started kind of breaking it up into pieces like these are the things i can stand behind there was fractions or like or, or in uh, of the church what happens in every religion we just call them forks because we're tech people and we fork things so there was you know the, the anti-orthodox copymism church and all of these kind of funny different layers that happen and with these fractions which was it's sort of like you set something on fire a little bit and then it starts burning this thing and this thing that you didn't know would actually burn and it like feeling like a pyromaniac that was just like looking at something burn and was kind of funny. But it's it's this unexpected outcome, like with the, the religion uh, having people getting married. I would never expected that, but it was it was funny. I I, I always like to play again with these plausible things. Another funny or sad thing i've been doing which is not so much related to the internet or copying but like every other uh, country in europe both sweden and finland where i'm mostly active have had a lot of trouble with the far right extremist parties joining kind of the the, mm. the political discourse as some sort of equal which is scary and and, and problematic so i actually with the um, some friends, we decided to start a, a, a true nationalist party in Sweden and in Finland because we have indigenous people here called the Sami, which a lot of people don't know about. But they are the, the true Swedish, Norwegian, Finnish uh, inhabitants to begin with, like from 20,000 years before the, the current Swedes or Finns came to this country. So we just decided we're going to, okay, so if we're going to have nationalist parties, then let's go extreme let's take the real nationalist and because yeah. they're super nice people they would never do it themselves but let's just pretend to be those guys and then we start a you know the, the instead of the swedish democrats we had the sami democrats and instead of like the, the you know the true Finns, we had the true samis we, we copied their wordings and we copied their debate articles and their political programs and we added some hitler and we added some you know all of these other things and we started talking about this middle eastern culture that were coming here and then you know but we meant Christianity rather than uh, Islam. And we talked about like these Swedes and these Finns moving into our countries, taking our women, taking our jobs, taking, you know, all of our minds and all of these things, which is kind of exactly the same story that's going on right now, but it just happened before. Yeah. And it was very interesting seeing how the, 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 especially the fascists and neo-Nazis were reacting to this because a lot of them agreed that, okay, so these guys were here before us. We took their, you know, we took their jobs. We took their minds. This is all true. And now we took their land. And they just said, fuck them. You know, uh, we don't care. Some of them said, you know, okay, we have to move back to like 
Belgium or uh, France or wherever our parents came from, you know, 10 year, generations ago, because they were true to their ideology. But it was for them, it was a wake up call when there, you had a much more extreme party that came there that would made equal amount of sense. And the press was really upset because they, they also didn't figure out until like two months afterwards that this was um, in a prank. So yeah, it made everyone feel stupid. But most of all, it made the Swedish and Democrats and, and the fin- true Finns feel quite stupid because they, they fell for it. And it was kind of funny. Then again, <laughs> there was this other thing. Again, as with the church, we, we opened up uh, memberships and a lot of people signed up. And for me, it was like, okay, here's a stupid guy that signed up. Here's another stupid guy that signed up. Only men signing up, of course. I uh, wonder why. And then um, my my co-founder, he is a little bit more extreme than me with when it comes to trolling and pranking. We got invited to a lot of political debates, of course, as a newly started party that got a lot of attention. And he sent one of the people that joined to go as an official uh, representative of the Sama Democrats to uh, an actual debate. And for me, it was just weird seeing this extreme right-wing guy sitting there talking about politics that we were laughing about and started this party. So after that, we kind of quit. But it's always fun to see this this turn that happens that is really unexpected. Well, it's because you're playing in those those borders between what is true and what is fake, what is what is false. And I feel like there's one more question I need to ask you about the church of Ecopiism, which is regarding its founder, Ibrahim Kopimi Botani. Uh, he's never been seen, apparently, and uh, he died in 2010. Uh, how much can you tell me about that individual, Peter? Uh, well, Eby was not the founder of the church, really. Uh, but uh. Eby was a good friend and was a member of the Bureau of, for Piracy. And he's been like one of the, I would say, one of the key people that were kind of figuring out what the internet actually meant for society in, in, in Sweden. When he died, we actually closed down the Bureau for Piracy a lot of because it was mm. felt it was time to like uh, to move on. But he was kind of the founder of the, the idea of copy me uh, was the playful thing of copy me in, instead of copyright. I'm not even sure he was super happy about the church, but of course he would have loved that something was copied and made into something else, which was kind of the idea of it. And that's kind of also the funny thing, like uh, a lot of things happening in, in kind of our group, we, we don't agree to, we, we are not like in favor of those things, but we, they go hand in hand with the ethos of testing things and finding out what happens. And, you know, people take credit for something which other people did. And it's kind of fine as long as it gives, has a higher meaning and then bigger perspective. And EB has been really, uh, for me, uh, an inspiration to all of these things as well. So I, I, I miss him, even though he could also be really hard working with, but uh, yeah, he was just an amazing guy. The only reason I asked Peter is because on researching the church, there was almost a suggestion in the press that because so much was fiction, that Ibi may have been a fictional individual in the first place. So there was certainly a question of the fact that because there were no photos of him or they couldn't find any photos of him, whether he was a, a, a fake identity. Again, I'm not sure how much you were, uh, you were able to share there. I will say no comment on that. <laughs> okay, well, we'll leave it. We'll leave it there. And then to move on to some of the ser- more serious implications of what you were doing at the Pirate Bay, because the reality was that there was a serious side to all of this. You were eventually wanted by Interpol, even though you still managed to evade Interpol's international arrest warrant for almost two to three years. I guess the first uh, question I have is how did you manage that for so long? 
Well, it was really hard. I went to conferences speaking. I traveled all over the world at the same time. So the thing is, Interpol really suck, which is, I have a big problem with that because I, I travel everywhere. I decided not to change my life because I wasn't wanted by Interpol. I just changed so that when I booked a ticket somewhere, I used my middle name as my last name. So it would still match the passport, but it wouldn't match the Interpol warrant because they didn't put my middle name in. So that's how easy it is to kind of bypass that also to be to be totally honest like i've been in like you know you, you have random traffic pullovers like they just check people's pa mm -hmm. you know identity card and driver's license my face is the best get out of jail free card so like i, I usually live in you know neighborhoods that are uh, more multicultural and whenever there's a police control they see a white man and they would just like oh yeah you're wow. the guy that we're just gonna let pass so racism has worked great for me, which makes me really upset, of course. Um, but it, it, it's been really, really annoying uh, and also good at the same time to kind of mix mix it up with uh, the, the church of, of, of Copy Me and, and, uh, and Interpol. And I did go to jail afterwards mm -hmm. after I ran for office and didn't get in. And in prison, they refused to give me vegan food, uh, which I you know immediately found like some, something to complain about. And I didn't want to change my ideologies because of, you know, going to prison or being arrested or anything like that. So I started the first day I started a fight with them that they needed to give me vegan food. And I showed them the, you know, the, the Swedish law about, you know, the, the right to have vegetarian food and a dictionary of what vegetarian food means that it means, you know, from vegetables. So they would give me lacto ovo vegetarian food, so eggs and milk, and I, I don't eat that. So mm. basically what, what I did is that I talked to my friends if they could update the Bible of uh, the Church of Copimism so that everyone has to be vegan in that wording, vegan, not just <laughs> vegetarian. And then they would fax actually the, the new Bible to the prison. And for religious reasons, I ended up having vegan food. So it was a really great kind of way for them to kind of circumvent the, the, the law uh, or like the, the, the prison mentality that, you know, so... So I've been probably the only person in, in Swedish prison that actually had the right to have vegan food. And then afterwards, people joined the Church of Kopimism just to have vegan food as well. Well, it seems like uh, it seems like it was worthwhile starting an entire entire religion for uh, dietary preferences, at least. But I mean, you did you ended up in, in, in prison for six months and it, there are problems surrounding that court case. I mean, in a lot of cases, it's been looked at as a as a joke, the, the way in which you ended up in prison in the first place. So could you explain some of the circumstances that actually led to your imprisonment and how there was some trickiness with, uh, with how that court case occurred? Well, it's a long story. But in general, what happened is that uh, the Hollywood movie studios and the music industry and all of these big Fortune 500 companies, they were really upset about us and not having control over the power pay and not getting us to listen or like dictate the, the, you know, what we were doing. They, of course, went to the White House to ask them to put pressure on Sweden to close down this website. Mm -hmm. They invited the, the, the White House, invited the Minister of Justice in Sweden over for a discussion about this case. He uh, understood that if Sweden doesn't take down the pirate pay, the U.S. will stop trading with Sweden and put the Sweden on trade sanction list and then go to the World Trade, trade Organization and ask for the same ban of Swedish goods being traded, uh, which is an ex it's like the nuclear bomb for kind of uh, making a, a country comply, especially an ally mm -hmm. that Sweden has been to the US, which is kind of outrageous um, and funny thinking about like how much how much they must have hated us. 
So the Minister of Justice came back to Sweden and he told the state prosecutor what the US has said. And basically, this is illegal for uh, in Sweden for a minister to tell a prosecutor or someone working for like an independent uh, from the government what to focus on or who to charge or anything like that. So he said he just informed him of the problems of not uh, charging us instead of telling him to charge us. He in turn talked to the prosecutor who had just a few weeks before I already looked into the case, came to the conclusion that we didn't break any laws. And just a few weeks after, there was another, there was a big raid against the Pirate Bay where they seized over 200 servers that didn't belong to the Pirate Bay. They had no clue what they were doing. They were yeah. just doing this in, in their, you know, because they had to do something drastically really quickly. So they arrested our lawyer, they uh, took our mice and speakers and, you know, they had no clue, really. Mm. And then during a really long investigation, like what, what happened is, of course, that the, the MPAA sent out a press release before the raid even happened, which made it possible for people to download a backup of the site before it was actually raided. And interestingly enough, stupid of them, because otherwise there was no backup. And what happened later was that it took three days for Pirate Bay to get back up online and was not hosted in Sweden anymore. So I think Sweden felt like this is fine. We don't have to do anything. And we all had the feeling that they were going to let the investigation just die out because Sweden did what they needed mm -hmm. to do for the US and so on. But instead, what happened is that after like one and a half years of really slow investigation, the investigation started to take turn. Uh, everyone was, you know, it, it got sped up and everything had to be done immediately and so on. And uh, the, the policeman in charge of the of the whole case went from being uh, kind of a nice person to a stressed person that was really upset and really annoyed and, and wanted everything over with uh, straight away. And it turned out that he also got a job from Warner Brothers and Universal during, you know, he got a job offer that he said, like, when you're done with this investigation, come start working for us with a really high salary. Wow. Uh, and the day after he handed over the investigation, he got a job in uh, with the same organizations that were behind the lawsuit against us, working on the same case again, like he was actually working as a police officer on Friday and on Monday, he was working as, you know, the head of anti-piracy in Europe against the Pirate Bay. Uh, with all of this information that he had on a personal level about our whereabouts, our phone numbers, all of these things that he got as a police officer. It was a big scandal in Sweden, of course. People were really upset about this. Uh, everyone except the new minister of justice, she said it was great that Sweden had such great police officers that even like these big companies wanted to employ them. <laughs> and uh, it didn't change the kind of court case because the judge decided this was not relevant. We also found out that the judge was the chairman of the pro-copyright society of Sweden, funded by the music industry that mm. uh, sued us. And we, uh, of course, filed um, complaints about him being biased and his friend who was the co-chair of the same organization was the judge that actually took the case on to decide if he's biased or not and they came to the conclusion that they aren't biased they were just really the best people because they have so much knowledge about the copyrights so that's why they should test the case so it was just scandal after scandal after scandal Sweden was not prepared of the pressure that the U.S. put on and the, the corruption that comes from, from these big corporations. Sweden has basically no laws against corruption on this level because it never happened before. So we did get convicted mostly without any evidence. Like um, there were screenshots of, of these companies downloading from Pirate Bay. And on all of the screenshots, it says that the Pirate Bay was actually 
not responsive. It, it said like different sites you download from, but when it came to actually the Pirate Bay, it says like the it was offline because Pirate Bay didn't always work well. And when they did the screenshots, and it was actually down for two days. So <laughs> they proved according to like the evidence that they downloaded from other places than the Pirate Bay, but still we got convicted of that because it was probable that they would have also been able to download that from Pirate Bay, which is a different thing than than what was going on. Ultimately, all of that led to you serving this six-month jail sentence. And how did that change your your outlook on the world? I mean, Peter, you certainly haven't lost your sense of humour. I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad of that. But did it certainly change how you thought about doing political activism in the world? No, I, I think one of the things that happen when you go to prison for uh, doing the right thing is that you. I wouldn't say that you get more uh, radicalized, but you get more in tune mm-hmm. with. The understanding of what's wrong in society. So, like the people I met in prison were the people that would have benefited from a better society. They, they were like all the classical type of you know having uh, you know a bad upbringing because you know mm-hmm. no parents involved because society didn't protect them enough. All of these things, which I believe is like uh, how we should treat people better, and we would have less crime instead of pe- putting people into prison longer or harder sentences. We should have better care and and, and better safety nets for people in society. And I think. Most of my political uh, convictions and ideologies were just proven in prison. I didn't have anything to feel ashamed for when I went to prison. I, I didn't do anything mm-hmm. wrong. I, you know, I wouldn't have changed anything. So I was kind of the sacrifice from the Swedish government to the United States government to keep on trading ABBA CDs and Volvo cars. You know, so and in general, you know, I've gained a lot from from doing what I do. I have a lot of people that are interesting that I talk get to talk to, like you, and then uh, you know, a lot of other people that want to have me you know around and then you know i meet people that i uh, respect quite a lot all the time i get a lot of things out of this as well so i don't feel like you know i'm i lost anything really of course being in prison is not funny um but i met people that i would never have met before and i got a better understanding of a lot of these people and i i realized that the way i look at society and how to improve society is probably the best way forward as well so it's a humbling experience in that way. One of the most revealing things that you said about your prison experience is that it was more freeing than the internet. So, Peter, what do you mean by that? Well, I don't remember, <laughs> to be honest. It's, it's seven <laughs> years ago, I think. No, but in, in many ways, prison has been... Um, you get to think things and it's not, you know, you have your rights are, are very clear in prison. Then they're being violated against all the, all the time, but at least you know what your rights mm-hmm. are. With the internet, we're kind of confused about that. We don't really know what our rights are. We are, yep. think we are allowed to do certain things, but we're not. And, and you know, the, the prison is more straightforward. It's more, you know, maybe it's because it's a much longer term institution, but the, the internet is... Yeah, it's broken in much more many ways than the prison is because the internet does not have, or like the current internet does not have any um, responsibility towards you. So in prison, at least there is some mm-hmm. sort of responsibility from the state and, and so on on how you're being treated. But the internet is totally the opposite. So that is kind of scary. Also, it's a kind of detox from technology, uh, which I think a lot of people would need today. So I think, uh, you know, in, in San Francisco, a lot of people just maybe they should just go to prison for half a year instead of paying for detox for half a year or something, you know. 
Well, if, if Congress has its way, then we're going to see a lot of people from Silicon Valley in prison uh, very, very soon. I mean, are you happy with how you managed to progress the debate and the public debate on copyright and freedom? If we fast forward to today, I mean, the, the entertainment industries reacted to what you were doing with the Pirate Bay in a really odd way. They, they ushered in, and it feels like you ushered in, the age of streaming. We, we have Netflix, we have Spotify and others. I mean, they've really filled that void once inhabited by illegal file sharing services such as the Pirate Bay. I mean, even Warner Brothers is now releasing all of its content online due to COVID-19 through its own streaming service, HBO Max. So it feels like their response was, well, let's just make it really easy to stream things. And that way folks won't go and try and find it, quote unquote, illegally on the internet. So uh, do you think that you've uh, you've ushered in streaming? Do you think that's the right response uh, that these companies should have? had or do you think something else should have happened i think the main problem with the the streaming services like i of course know that because of PowerPay that that happens spotify often says that without PowerPay there would be no spotify because of the void the gap in between uh, the kind of the parties if you want to look at like PowerPay versus someone even though i think it's basically capitalism versus some alternative form of, of society but but they they often claim that you know that they fill the void that that we brought on the problem for me is that you know they want to thank me and thank the pirate bay and thank like the pirates for for doing that so that spotify can exist and we have a better solution now for me it's the opposite i think it's spotify and netflix and all of these they've created a new cable tv which is against ideals that i wanted to have with the internet i wanted to have free sharing i didn't want to have you know this and this package uh with these and these channels that we we have to pay for and have different access depending on how much money we have and another thing that that I really object to is that previously, if you look at Spotify as an instance, previously the record companies had to pay for distribution and they had to like prepay for studio time and all of this. But as technology has progressed, there's no need for distribution anymore. It's, it's zero cost. Um, and studio time is basically you can take an, an, an office and you put in some, you know, some computers and then some soundproofing and you can make, uh, you know, uh, one of the best tracks of the year for a really low cost. So you don't have these costs anymore that the record companies previously used to be like the venture capitalists for, but they still take the same amount of money as they did before with Spotify and, and, and iTunes and the, the, the streaming services. They also own part of them and they, they have a deal with them that basically says that if they don't do exactly and pay as much as they want to, they would just cut the deal from Spotify or from anyone else and then make their, their business defunct. We were on the verge of getting rid of them as middlemen where you could have rather instead of having a gatekeeper that decided what music you can listen to or what kind of movies that would be promoted, all of these things, it would be something that we did as an audience uh, together with artists. And we would get rid of the middleman, which is the honestly, they're so rich and they're taking so much money and that money should rather be the audience's or the, the artist's money. We don't have a need for these entities anymore. And, and Spotify has cemented that thing. So it, 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 we're, they have no more power than ever before. And they do less and get more money than ever before from these services. And, and then we're applauding them saying like, hey, you solve kind of the situation. But in general, uh, you know, all of a sudden you're on, on, on Spotify and, and some of your tracks are, are not in your playlist anymore because Spotify lost some sort mm. of deal with a record company and, and you've lost your musical heritage because music and, 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 and this type of culture is it's not about money or licenses or fees or anything like that. It's 
human emotion and memories and then connectivity and then culture uh, has a much higher value and meaning than just finance and, and business. And we could have gotten another route. We, we could have seen governments or countries coming up with better ideas of how to fund the arts, like a universal basic income would be one way, but we didn't even have that this discussion whatsoever. We just said like, here's a problem within the age of technology. Uh, the people that used to sell physical items are not going to be able to do that anymore. So we need to give them some sort of holy license to print money without doing anything in the future for historical reasons. And for me, that's just like, you know, people used to sell ice in the streets. What if, you know, we decided like, oh, now we're going to have a fridge. They're going to have 20% of all fridges, all of the income from fridges for the rest of their lives without doing anything. We would be outraged by that. But when it comes to these lobbying efforts that they've done, that they've been, you know, really good at that. It's not something which is great for society. So if you look at the problems this creates, uh, if you go to a country that is not let's say, uh, uh, you know, a Western world country or not a country with a population that is in general middle class or richer. These companies are not going to spend time and, and, and search on getting market licenses for these countries. So I, I travel quite frequently to, to Kosovo and then Brazil and before COVID, obviously. And they still use file sharing because they don't, they are not first class citizens, according to these corporate uh, entities. They're not wallets enough uh, for them to actually come there and, and give them the streaming services, even though there's no technical reason not doing it. We have now, again, created a class system where the poor get less access to, and to information and culture and, and the rich get everything. And we don't think about the poor countries anymore because we, you know, we're kind of done. So when you listen to music on Spotify, you don't share them on file sharing systems with people from countries that are not rich. And all of a sudden you created this class society that you're actually part of. So this is, uh, even though we don't talk about file sharing or piracy that much in the Western world, it's, it's the biggest thing in, in outside the Western world because it's the only thing. And that's extremely problematic. I mean, this all comes back down to the thing that is fundamentally problematic about the internet in the 21st century, which is centralization. I mean, centralization of these services around certain stacks and large big tech services, it, it poses a massive danger, doesn't it? And, and Peter, how are you looking towards some of the ways in which we can start to decentralize the internet? Is it even possible in the 21st century? Are these big tech companies just too powerful? And, and we've lost the internet. There's no way to repair it. So, um, I, no, definitely we lost it. We, we have no way of, of repairing it. We have ways of patching uh, things a little bit, but it's going to be Band-Aid on an open cancer wound. That That's kind of the situ situation we're at. Mm. That's something we're going to live with for the rest of our lives. Facebook and Google and these companies are so powerful that they don't really have to listen to politicians anymore. If the US would, even though they won't, change their minds like uh, the new president biden is uh, is one of the best friends of the mpaa he loves you know these streaming services and then maybe he doesn't like the big tech with facebook and so on but uh, they're kind of the same crowd if they would start being hard on them and deciding or you know saying like you can't have the user terms you have you need to give out the information mm -hmm. you know, ownership of your of the identities and so on to individuals 
Facebook or Google, they would just leave and buy their own uh, Caribbean nation. And that's, you know, an, an option for them today. And they have much more money than these islands have. They have a turnover that's bigger than most countries' GDP. So we've gone to kind of super capitalism. So it's not a, a question about technology or decentralization. It's a, it's about ownership of identities, ownership of data, ownership of our cultural heritage, rather than a technolo uh, technological question. So a lot of people in, in kind of my in my sphere, they're technologists and they have amazing solutions to all of these problems. But the problem is not that we're lacking technology to do decentralized services. Internet is a decentralized service that we've decided to remake into centralized service. Mm -hmm. So like everything that's based on, you know, Facebook is using the decentralized technologies that we, we could use ourselves. We just decided that we're not going to run these nodes or software on our own machines. We're going to let some corporate entities do it and they're really good at it. And what they're giving us is, you know, something, just the easiness of, of reaching each other. So we're not going to see any move over to decentralized services. Every time there is an issue with, you know, Facebook censorship or some other censorship, people talk about decentralization being and, and that they, they have the technology ready to do that. And they're super stoked about it. And I'm super happy that these people exist. But the problem is not one of technology. It's one of power. That's why Mark Zuckerberg mm -hmm. is, you know, invited to talk in in, uh, in these uh, court cases and in, in front of the governments and so on, because he has more power than they do in most of these questions. So we're way beyond repairable situation. We can maybe start repairing some of that by, you know, instating human rights in a digital form, like the ownership of identity should be definitely something we have. We need to force these corporations to be interoperable. But even if we did that, they have another advantage, and that is of money. So if you look at Google, they don't have competitors mm. really because they buy potential competitors. They spend a lot of money on doing that because they want the people that are potentially good employees, uh, quality uh, programmers, and so on with good ideas. They would just want to employ them. And the troublesome thing is like when I talk to young people today, technologists that are doing startups and so on, their exit strategy, because they have one, like I've never had an exit strategy in my life when it comes to doing an organization. <laughs> I've had like some sort of idea of why I wanted to do it. But many of them think that they need to have an exit strategy or, you know, a five-year plan and mm -hmm. so on. The business world is like forcing them to have this. And most of them is like, yeah, in five years or two to five years, Google will buy us. That's an typical exit plan for a startup today which is extremely worrying because it's uh, it's probably their best bet um either that or google does the same and, and make sure that they go bankrupt because they have the eyeballs the audience and all of that that uh, every new organization would need so i don't really see a way forward um you know the, the main problem here is again capitalism uh, and the way the market is set up uh, and even though we do see like gamestop and all of these things happening it's a small you know uh, annoyance on, on the big picture hmm. which is not going to change it's rather the opposite it's being worse 
uh, and and more uh, uh, cemented into our you know foundation in, in every country in the world all the time. The crazy thing is, Peter, you're mentioning there that you know Facebook or Google they could just buy an island, and that seems very similar to the story you were telling me at the beginning of this podcast, where you were going to buy your own virtual country. So the crazy thing was, is you were doing this a decade ago, and it was considered illegal, but now these large big tech companies are doing it today, and it seems perfectly. Legal. And, and when we talk about decentralization and redesigning the internet, a lot of techno-optimists are quick to point to blockchain. And they go, look, NFTs, non-fungible tokens, they're going to help artists, they're going to help media creators. And do you believe that blockchain technology is the solution? Or in actual fact, do you think, you know what, that's just another part of the problem here? When you look at the, the financial side of blockchain, uh, it, it is kind of a gamble. It's another capitalist system bring another kind of asset into some uh into a marketplace it's not what it was uh, originally conceived as we we thought of it as some sort of like a uh, decentralized anonymous payment system uh, even though bitcoin not being uh, anonymous but uh it was a different way to kind of circumvent certain regulation that made it hard for activists specifically to to deal with sharing money in in uh, in a way that the governments couldn't intervene. Of course, this turned into becoming some sort of, of marketplace, which is extremely volatile and a little bit dangerous. So I, I, it doesn't it doesn't fill a, a need for the everyday citizen. It doesn't fill. Mm. We don't have a money issue really. We have decentralized money right now. It's called cash. The problem is that it, that's being taken away, and and of course, especially here in Scandinavia, but. Uh, it's it's there's no interest in having decentralized money. We we can see that people are, don't want to have cash. They want to have a credit card, and they want to, they want to do um, you know all of these systems. They don't want to run their own bank in, in in their pocket either. So so I think it when it comes to NFT, it's not going to be something which is for every artist. It's going to be something which is going to work for uh, artists that already have an audience that are interested mm-hmm. in technology or or want to have, uh, you know, but but it's not something which is good for like the general audience or something which makes you reach a mass audience. Because if it's, you know, about abundance, then internet is great. But if it's about scarcity, then the internet is, that's not what the internet is made for. So mm-hmm. then you have to like, put scarcity on something it's a virtual scarcity which is kind of an obscene idea when it comes to to information i think but i think the the techno optimists looking at blockchain and on these technologies they are not really into it for society's reason maybe some of them Mm. might be and have this almost religious fanatic view of these things uh, fixing things but then again if you look at blockchain what it really is you can compare it to an Excel spreadsheet that if there's an update, you get the new version of the Excel spreadsheet, but it's extremely, extremely slow to update this spreadsheet of information. Mm-hmm. So it's not a good technology for doing a database that it's uh, distributed. So yes, it can be good for certain things, but it's not this idea that we can solve it with blockchain. It, it's just, it's kind of the opposite. It's a very specialized technology that could be helpful in certain cases. But I don't think that, again, technology is not the solution to what technology fucked up. I think it's like, oh, yeah, this building is on fire. Let's burn a little bit more and then it will stop being on fire. In the end, of course, everything will be burned down. And that's what we're looking at when it comes to the Internet. Everything will be fucked up in the end because we're trying to fuck it up even more because it's fucked up. So I'm not very 
optimistic when it comes to these mm. new technologies and the, the I'm not a techno optimist neither. I'm, you know, I, I, I see that there is a major problem is that technologists that they, they don't get an education mostly in, in ethics or in philosophy or anything like that in school. Uh, they are, you know, basically lobbied by the big tech companies that, you know, come work for us. And then they don't really see a bad, uh, nothing bad with that. And it probably isn't bad on an individual level either. Like Google is probably really good for their employees, but it's not good that everyone starts working at Google either. Right. So that's something we as a society need to take uh, to, to deal with. It shouldn't just be up to Google to, to have that power. I think the other problem is, is, is the stakes increase a lot of the folks of these tech companies seem to lose their sense of humor. That's why that's why I love what you do, Peter, is, is you've kept that sense of humor. And that's the core of all the ways in which you're thinking about restructuring these things. And we're beginning to see attempts by folks like Tim Berners-Lee and Jimmy Wales to rebuild a web that we want and a web that we deserve. But do you think they're really going to be good solutions for building a solid, long-term, responsible sort of internet? Or as you've just suggested there, should we burn the whole thing down and try and start again somehow? I think we we shouldn't burn it down because a lot of people depend upon it. That's the problematic <laughs> That's thing. We mm. And we can't really build something new because you won't get people to move and you will not solve it with new technology. One of the things that I loved being part of the Bureau for Piracy was that very often when he talked about things, it's like, here's a problem. We do not have a solution. We're not politicians. We don't, we, we don't have a solution to present. Here's a problem. Deal with it. <laughs> not everything can be solved. Not everything has to be solved. Not everything will be right in the future <laughs> or even right now. We cannot solve every problem that we see. And the problem of the internet is one of those things that we will not be able to solve. We will maybe be able to mitigate some of it, but it will be like, um, I very often compare this to uh, sexual transmitted diseases. Like we do now have AIDS. We will not be able to get rid of AIDS. We will have condoms or a VPN uh, or something in technical terms that will mitigate some of the problems that we have because of AIDS or uh, NSA or uh, all of these different uh, acronyms. But we will never be rid of them, right? So we need to learn how to deal with them. We need to learn how to have as little impact as possible of the bad sides of this but we will we, we you know we still have people smoking to this day even though we know mm. it's an awful thing and the way of getting rid of smoking is not by shaming people that you're you're a smoker it's by you know in the end maybe making sure that tobacco has an incident and you know and the leaves die or something so that there's no more tobacco you know i don't know but it, it's not going to stop uh because we want it to stop it's going to um you know maybe harm reduction is the right word i'm looking for but um th that's also the beauty of being human it's not that we are mm. perfect individuals we're not a perfect society and that's uh we kind of need that kind of friction in order to maybe find alternative ways alternative things to think about. We need to focus more on philosophy in general in society. I think a lot of people have been starting to understand that a little bit more when it comes to technology. And there are things to kind of build upon that is interesting. Just looking at like this, one of my favorite things that I discovered just like a decade ago is a discussion between uh, Michel Foucault and, and, and John Chomsky in the mm -hmm. 70s about 
the future and what it could look like uh, and how it would be. Um, they were describing a decentralized, distributed, federated network of, of humans, very much like the internet. And, and they had an idea of how it would be regulated. And if we had listened to the philosophy back then and taken that into context when building this new thing called the internet, it would have been very much better, of course. Of course, you know, I think there will be something after the internet as well, just as there's always been something after mm. uh, that, but it, it, maybe we can learn from that, but it would not be in our lifetimes. It does feel like if some of these tech CEOs just stayed in school, that we wouldn't have the problems that we have today. They should have gone to some philosophy classes instead of dropping out of Harvard and Stanford. I mean, Peter, you're still working in trying to make some of these changes through some new tech projects. And it's a, I mean, it's a miracle to some degree that the press still takes you seriously. They're, they're never sure now whether you're uh, trying to troll them or not. But you've you've looked at micropayments with Flatter and, and with your uh, encrypted messaging platform hemel.is you're you're trying to trying to get into the space that signal are in at the moment and and most recently you're looking at how to do privacy oriented domain name registrars so what are the challenges of some of these new projects and, and why are they so important to you and to the future of the internet Every project that I start uh, has been with a different approach that has values uh, attached to it, mm -hmm. not just some sort of business. So Flutter, for instance, uh, is a micropayment system, as you said, that is looking at value in a different way than, than how much does an item cost. Because I, I don't think that you can actually put a price upon an individual song for a certain user or like a blog post, mm -hmm. what it would be worth in terms of money or, or a news article or, or something like that. I, I think with the internet, everything like that changed. And we need some sort of new technology that also acknowledges that change. And even though I worked on Flatter for over 10 years, and it got, later got sold to uh, a company in, in Germany that runs Adblock, which is would be a good fit if they uh, ever make the, the you know necessary changes. <laughs> I, I think the, for me, it's been somewhere between trying new technology for uh, ideological reason, also finding new technology because I, I'm a technologist uh, at the core of it. So I, I like technology and working with technology. But the problem is, is I always end up in that situation where you say that people should stop taking me seriously or, or so on. But mm. I do also have a serious side with everything I do. I, I do use pranking and trolling as a way of getting attention for my causes. And because it's, it's fucking funny to have fun. <laughs> but, but in general, I think... I do have a certain different mindset than most of these mm -hmm. organizations that is more than just, you know, how much money can I make from this? I think that in general, the, the audience that they like what I'm doing and they want to be supportive of me. But my problem always gets to when normally when I'm when you're in an organization, you have a great product and you talk to someone. I have my audience with me. I get enough attention to get it rolling. And then when I go to someone who I need to partner with because they have the big audience let's say i wanted to have flatter on youtube but they said like great idea we want to do it ourselves because our platform is so big and then i'm cut out because i'm I'm too small mm. or or um, the other day i i've been trying for a few years to to become a, an i can registrar accredited registrar with ICANN, which basically would allow me to sell the domain names uh, like com or net and so on directly from from those instead of having a middleman and ICANN has for the first time ever banned one person for life 
uh, from what it seems, because of my political views. They wow. just don't feel comfortable doing business with me. And the, the funny thing here is like, I want to get into that space because it's um, it's an important space because domain mm -hmm. names are basically our identities on the internet and it controls everything. Everything you do is, you know, first starts with a domain name. And I can say, you know, I, I'm dangerous in that way that I should not be able to work with them. A lot of ex-criminals are working in that industry. There's a lot of corrupt people in that industry. There are, you know, old killers. There are elephant shooters. There's a lot of, you know, people that have committed crime. I'm the only one ever that's been banned for this in this way because I have an agenda which is not good for them, which is I want decentralization. I want them to have less influence. Mm -hmm. Maybe the problem is that I'm too open uh, with what I'm doing. And... But I think that's also in the long run, it's what I'm supposed to do. Maybe it's my, my given task in this world is like you have a discussion between, you know, here and here. And I want the discussion to move a little bit to the left. So I will stand, you know, 200 meters away that way. And then someone else will come in and swoop and say, like, I'm this moderate person that are at the place where I wanted to move to. So maybe that's just my given role. I don't know. But I do have fun with what I'm doing and people like what I'm doing and, and I like I'm very open and honest with my ideals when I do things like this. And I think it's, uh, I can wake up every morning and look myself in the mirror. And I mm. don't think a lot of people in my industry, in my industries can say the same. That is extremely valuable to me. So if anyone's listened to this this podcast and they want to get away from the keyboard, as you so wonderfully put it, and engage in more real life activism, where do you suggest they even start? Like from a personal conviction, stop eating meat. That's the first step because you get a lighter head, a better body and less ashamed of your uh, killing animal sides. Mm -hmm. No, but in general, I think it's what happened to me is that I, I think very often I've looked at myself and said, like, do I really think this? Uh, why did I decide on thinking the, think, the things I, I do? Like uh, meat, for instance, being one of those things, I, I did know in the back of my mind that, you know, I, I never really ate the meat on the plate. It was just like, I I was brought up thinking dinner is a piece of meat with all of these things around. And I would always leave some of the meat because I didn't like it. And there was mm -hmm. something in my body that said no. I think a lot of things that we have learned, we need to unlearn. And it just has to be like, you know, you have to find out who you are and why do you have the beliefs you do. And when you start looking at those beliefs, where they come from, they might mostly come from your parents or from your surroundings, not so much from your own convictions. And I think uh, that is the first step, you know, finding out who you are rather than what you want to be. Well, Peter, you have such a wonderful story about how to engage in, in civil disobedience. And I hope that it's inspired some of our listeners today. And I just want to thank you for being on the Futures Podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you to Peter for showing us the importance of activism in a digital age. If you like what you've heard, then you can subscribe for our latest episode. Or follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at Futures Podcast. More episodes, transcripts, and show notes can be found at futurespodcast.net. Thank you for listening to the Futures Podcast.